This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An aging stretch of I-70 is often people's first introduction to Colorado. They land at DIA and hop on a fairly undesirable thoroughfare into Metro Denver or up to the mountains. Now a makeover is coming, a massive one. Tomorrow, they break ground on a $1.2 billion four-year redesign of I-70 through Denver. It'll mean eliminating that viaduct, which is sort of like a tourniquet running through several neighborhoods. How will this affect commutes? We asked Colorado Department of Transportation spokeswoman Rebecca White. This project has kind of a slow ramp up. The first time travelers on the interstate will really start to see activity on the main line is probably in September. Work on side streets will start sooner toward Peoria Street. The most complex and contested part of the project won't start for two more years when crews will dig to lower a section of the highway, replacing that viaduct. Altogether, 56 homes and 17 businesses were uprooted for this. CDOT insists it's looking out for the neighborhoods, starting with Swansea Elementary School. We've done a lot of work with the school. It's sort of the heart of Elyria Swansea. And altogether, that school has received about $18 million worth of improvements. We're providing $2 million for an affordable housing land trust. And that's related to the fact that we did have to acquire homes for the project. And, you know, affordable housing is such a difficult issue in Denver right now. And these neighborhoods are feeling it. We also are providing home improvements to about 250 homes that are right there along the viaduct, really to just kind of help them through construction. Now, there have been several lawsuits to try to stop the project, questioning everything from the environmental and health impacts to civil rights, but they have failed to halt construction. Roughly 200,000 cars use this stretch of I-70 every day, and so we'll watch the ongoing impact closely here at CPR News. Now to a very different highway project in Colorado. It's not about congestion, but about what's happening alongside the road. Work is underway to turn I-76 from Denver to the Nebraska line into the Colorado Pollinator Highway, a corridor where pollinators, including bees, can thrive. Why are spaces like this needed? Let's ask Mario Padilla and Joyce Kennedy. He's an entomologist and beekeeper at the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster. She co-chairs the nonprofit PPAN, the People and Pollinators Action Network. They're partnering with the state on this corridor. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Why do this along a highway? It seems like a recipe for a lot of bugs, good bugs, to be splatted against windshields. That's a great question. Um, the reason we want to do it along this highway is because there's a lot of unused space that these animals can use to thrive and, and live um, along these highways. Um, for the bug splatter question, if we have a, enough density of food for these animals, which is, is flowers, that's their food, um, they're not going to be crossing the road. They're going to have enough swath and enough density of food that they're going to be able to fly up and down the highway with, with no problem at all. So what's being planted or encouraged to grow and what is being suppressed to create a pollinator highway? Yeah, I could also speak to that a little bit. Um, the things that we want for pollinators are nesting sites. So that's going to be um, plants that have fallen on the ground and, and maybe not be cleaned up like you would in your yard. But the most important thing that we want is food throughout the season, through the spring, summer, and the fall. So uh, a wide variety of food and a wide variety of plants that are 
blooming throughout these three seasons, and they might be different plants, but they're going to support these animals throughout their life. Okay, and will that be planting things or encouraging things already there to grow? It's going to be a combination of both. There is going to be some initial plantings, but also encouraging things that are native and growing already to support these animals. Will it also be about weeding some things out? I think there is a plan to remove some of the noxious weeds, absolutely, that'll choke out some of the the natives. This will be a pilot project in that CDOT, along with partners, will plant eight miles worth of corridor near the Julesburg Welcome Center. And so we'll learn much from this project in terms of the native plants that are used and how to maintain it. Are there a lot of these pollinator highways in the country? They're growing. The interest in this has grown out of a presidential memorandum issued in 2014. And so CDOTs around the country are taking this this project work on. Colorado is becoming a leader in creating pollinator highways. The question is why? Why does this matter to the pollinators, to our food supply? Explain the stakes here for us. Well, there can be a broad impact because CDOT manages about 9,000 miles of corridors. And so with uh, the lack of habitat that we have in the state and and the country, this is a huge opportunity to create places for insects and other wildlife to feed and live. This reminds me of a decades-old project to plant wildflowers, for instance, along the highway. Uh, was that Ladybird, I think, who, who, yes. who championed that? Uh, but the idea here is potentially to help our own food supply, I suppose. It is. It can support pollination of agriculture. And it's having good, healthy plants uh, can create places for cooling and for carbon sequestration. It can support pollination around the state. It also does have that beautiful element, as you mentioned, with the Ladybird Johnson highway plantings. Now, what are pollinators? I know bees are in that category. I think we'd all sort of react if we were asked what a pollinator was with, with that answer. But it's beyond bees, isn't it? Oh, it's well beyond bees. Most of our pollinators are insects, um, but we're talking about bees. We're talking about the second most important pollinator, flies, that people don't think about. Wait, wait, wait. Flies are pollinators. Flies Flies are great pollinators. But we just think of flies as sort of dirty pests. You think of a fly as your house fly, but if actually you're looking at flowers and looking at these animals pollinating, you're going to see a lot of what they call bee flies. They're surfeit flies. They almost look exactly like a bee, and that's why people really don't notice that they're flies immediately. Okay. What else? Um, um, some of our other important pollinators, of course, um, from Butterfly Pavilion, so butterflies and moths. These animals need, um, as adults, they need the nectar to support themselves, but they need, um, as um, immature larvae or caterpillars, they need those plants to eat in, in order to pupate and become adults. Will this stretch of highway require a lot of maintenance? Are we going to see crews out there sort of constantly tending to this, or are they self-sustaining at some point? The long-term goal would have them need reduced maintenance. So one of the great benefits of this project is reduced mowing along the highway stretches in general in Colorado. So throughout the growing season, plants will be allowed to go to flower, which provides that important food, as well as reduced pesticide use. 
so that they will only need to spot spray noxious weeds. And so overall, it's it's a win-win for the state in terms of saving money and time. What is the state these days of pollinators? I know that we have heard about various afflictions affecting bees, for instance. Climate change certainly must be a part of this equation. How does this fit into the broader question of the health of pollinators, which are so important to our food supply? Yeah, they are absolutely vital to our food supply. Food prices would go up. It's true that about one out of every three bites you take is because of an animal pollinator. One out of every three bites I take. Yes. Interesting. Okay. So you're th- thinking about all your nuts, all your fruits, um, dairy, beef. These cattle need pollinated plants in order to produce that good product. Um, and what this project aims to do is support these animals. One of the most important things you could have is food and shelter, right? Those are the most two most important things. This is going to provide both of them to these animals. And what what is the general health of bees, for instance, these Ye- days? Yeah, so there's a lot of research that um, occurs with honeybees because they are so linked to human agriculture. Um, we use bees for, for pollinator purposes, honeybees specifically. But it is true that we see declines of about 30% of our honeybee populations every year on average. And um, 30% every year? Yes. So it is a constantly shrinking pie, if you will? Yeah, it's a pie that shrinks and then kind of rebounds a little bit during the year and then shrinks again. But the the way it's shrinking is pretty much unsustainable at this time for our um, managed pollinators, which are honeybees. Other pollinators um, are not as widely looked at because there's such diversity of them. But there are um, studies that have been able to look at native bees, including bumblebees and mason bees, and these kinds of bees are also suffering some of the same consequences that the honeybees are. Lack of habitat, lack of food, lack of nesting sites, pesticides, etc. So the idea of a pollinator highway is absolutely about addressing that. Joyce, I think you were going to add something. I was going to add that we have very high bee diversity in Colorado. We have over 900 species. And I encourage people to go out and look at the flowering plants in their yard and start to witness just that amazing diversity, we can all make a difference in our our, our own properties that we own and manage just by planting a wide variety of plants that will feed the bees and and to reduce our pesticide spraying. That is creating, in a way, um, our own rest stops (laughs) for, for these pollinator highways. Is the corridor, uh, which will eventually go, as we say, to the Nebraska state line, how many years will that take? This will, this pilot will give us an indication of just how easy or difficult this will be. Okay. The Department of Transportation will rely on willing partners, such as ourselves, to help spearhead these types of projects. The volunteers at this action Absolutely. network? Absolutely. And so the first pilot, which will occur um, in October, we will be relying on volunteers for that. And this is a good opportunity to get the word out about that project. Well, thank you for talking about a highway project that may not be on everyone's radars. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ryan. We heard from Mario Padilla. He's an entomologist and beekeeper at the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster. Joyce Kennedy co-chairs the nonprofit PPAN, People and Pollinators Action Network. We talked about I-76 becoming the Colorado Pollinator Highway, eventually from Denver, as we said, to the Nebraska line. The idea of following the money is a given for government watchdogs, including the press. But what if you can't follow the money? The new documentary Dark Money exposes how corporations secretly and sometimes illegally fund politicians. 
The film is set in the West, specifically in Montana. In one scene, a state senator there is talking to voters about attack ad mailers paid for by activist groups with names like Mothers Against Child Predators. Mothers Against Child Predators was not about mothers at all. It was two people and a lady treasurer on a, on a wholly different issue, sending flyers into a Catholic area, and it was effective. Because folks like my mother picked up an ad and they can't see who mothers against child predators are. They can only see that mothers don't like this guy. Dark money is the advertising where you don't know who's paying for the ads. Just simply got to hold these up and say, who's paying for this? Does anybody know anybody in these groups? Who's paying for this? What are they attempting to buy? The film Dark Money is directed by Kimberly Reed. It opens Friday in Denver, and it features a whistleblower from Colorado, whom we'll meet in just a little bit. And Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. There's a quote from your film that I just want to read. Campaign finance is the gateway to every other issue you might care about, whether it be education or tax reform or foreign policy. I wonder if, to some extent, that was your motivation for making the documentary. Yeah, I think it really is. I mean, regardless of which side of the political aisle you're on, regardless of which political issue you're passionate about or which side of that issue that you sit on, um, the most important factor in those issues moving forward is the money that is behind that. And when you can't tell where that money is coming from, it's impossible for voters to determine what the motivations are behind uh, an an organization or maybe just one individual uh, who is trying to game the political system for their own benefit. If we can't see uh, the source of the money, uh, we can't determine if there's corruption, especially quid pro quo corruption going on with elected officials. So I think it's um, just a real threat to our democracy when we have all of this anonymous money washing through the system. I'm sure there are some who would say that transparency isn't perhaps as important as you're making it out to be, that uh, a voter can judge an issue uh, on its face themselves. But why do you think transparency is so critical? Uh, Well, I think what you see in in our film is is we show a a process of an organization from out of state. Um, They actually ran the same program in five different states around the nation. Um, And it really had nothing to do with the citizens in that state and uh, issues that they were trying to, you know, promote or defeat. Um, And, you know, I... So here's the story. The other, the other uh, couple of weeks ago, we were at a film festival in Nashville, and that film festival was a couple of days after an election where they voted on a ballot initiative to bring more public transportation to Nashville. And uh, just before the election, there was a bunch of uh, anonymous money that uh, flooded the election, thanks to some dogged journalists who were following the money, we found out that some of it was Koch brother money, and you can kind of figure out what the motivations are there. It's not uncommon to see Koch brother money and, um, you know, ballot initiatives having to do with public transportation. But there was another big chunk of money um, where we just couldn't tell where it was coming from until the very last minute when it turned out to be the guy in town who owns all of the local car dealerships. So, obviously, um, if voters 
knew that, uh, you know, to answer your question, uh, they would be able to see what the influences were on this ballot initiative to kind of factor in the motivations of somebody who owns car dealerships in town and to uh, ignore uh, some of the messaging that was coming from that particular individual, but without that knowledge of where the money is coming from and how they're trying to shift the political dialogue, voters just aren't able to make that decision. So we're just trying to level that playing field. All right. This film, Dark Money, is largely set in Montana, where you're from. There's a long history there, as there has been in Colorado, by the way, of big corporations getting involved in politics without much transparency. Uh, A long history of this that has led to some state laws in Montana to try and keep that from happening again. So just briefly tell us about that history in Montana. Yeah, and uh, as you say, it is a, a, a similar history in Colorado and a lot of the Rocky Mountain states, which typically... We're very rich in resources, natural resources, especially, you know, gold and silver, and in Montana's case, copper. And uh, when you have a lot of natural resources and not many people, uh, you tend to find a lot of uh, folks from out of state uh, who are moving in to try to develop those natural resources. Um, the, the common story to Montana and, and to Colorado is that folks – uh, make a lot of money, and then usually leave the people who live in that state behind to clean up after them. And that is often a story of uh, just in environmental cleanups uh, that need to happen. So, And that was the story in Montana. Um, in fact, it was some of the most famous stories about corruption when one of the copper kings in Butte, Montana, named William A. Clark, um, you know, he, he owned all the mines, he owned some newspapers, he uh, uh, had a bunch of politicians in his pocket, but he decided that he wanted to be a U.S. senator, actually Montana's first U.S. senator, and uh, openly bribed people. This is back when legislators elected uh, senators, not the not the general public. That's right. So he bribed all of the legislators, ten, had his henchmen hand out envelopes full of $10,000 bills on the floor of the Montana legislature to, uh, to buy his votes. And um, he was actually elected uh, because of that. But once he got to Washington, D.C., uh, the corruption was so rampant that the sitting senators in D.C. refused to seat him. And back home in Montana, that led to a lot of uh, outrage amongst voters. And so in 1912, they passed the, the Corrupt Practices Act of 1912 that essentially outlawed uh, corporate spending in political campaigns. Indeed. And that comes up prominently in the film Dark Money. But your documentary shows how involved corporations want to be today. Uh, emboldened, no doubt, by the Citizens United ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, which found that political spending is a form of free speech and that that extends to corporations and unions. Uh, But you are focused on illegal behavior here, in in large part in the film. Help us understand what you mean by dark money, and specifically as it relates to activities against the law, just briefly. 
Yeah, one thing um, that the Supreme Court, uh, all of this uh, political spending is, is predicated on is that if these organizations spend money independently from a candidate, um, then that's okay. But if you're giving money directly to the candidate, then that would might have a corrupting influence. So these, these expenditures, as they call them, are supposed to happen independent of the candidate. Um, that is not what happened in, in Montana, according to uh, the findings of the Commissioner of Political Practices, the person who enforces the campaign finance laws. And uh, in the film, we actually trace all of that uh, through one court case. It was a very high-profile right. court case that a lot of people were watching, and that um, um, kind of uh, won't give you any spoiler alerts about where that goes. Well, but, I, I'm about uh, to, so I, I okay, hope it's okay cool. that I Let's do. do uh, but this idea of coordination is really central to the law here. And I'll just say that in Colorado, corporations and labor unions are not supposed to contribute directly to political campaigns. They can, as you say, contribute to these independent uh, expenditure committees, issue committees. And by the end of the film, again, this is a spoiler alert, a Republican state senator in Montana, Art Wittick, is found guilty of this type of illegal coordination. And I actually want to introduce the Colorado whistleblower who is really a linchpin in the case, who's also featured in this film, Dark Money. Hi, Sarah Arnold. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, you used to be with National Right to Work, uh, which fights what it calls forced unionism. And it operated under the same roof as American Tradition Partnership, one of these nonprofit advocacy groups. Uh, and these are the organizations Wittick uh, coordinated with. What did you see while you worked there that made you realize this was fishy? It was quite an interesting organization, the way that it was set up. Everything was run out of one house and one male house. Um, and just when I started working there, I was 20 and a little bit naive. And once we got through the campaigns and working 18 to 20 hour nights or days, um, it kind I of... I bet there were nights, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. Lots of nights. <laughs> we, um, I kind of had the time to sit back and, and look at that and go, whoa, what just happened here? I'm not sure that's quite legal. And doing some research into it, it was pretty clear that it wasn't legal what just happened. Do you think that they hired you to some extent because you might have been perceived as young and naive? Yes. I believe yes. that that's who, what they looked for when they hired staffers. I was the only one, to my knowledge, who had any political experience prior to working for them. You knew enough to ask questions, apparently. You were on the stand in this case for six hours? Yes. That's a lot of testimony. How did that feel? It was um, both terrifying and a little exhilarating. I'm a fan of public speaking, and so I got to say it was it was nice to be able to finally tell my story oh. and have that have a real impact. It was not just your testimony that was used against this state lawmaker. There were boxes of evidence called the Colorado Papers. Yes. One of the individuals involved in this organization, at least the way the story is, was in Colorado, had a bunch of the records for ATP in his car. His car got broken into and all these records were lost. Some documents that were reported to be those of my client, American Tradition Partnership, that were found in a crack house in Colorado. A meth house that was being raided by the police, and someone who was there was heading out the window and grabbed file boxes with these documents. And then apparently someone turned those documents over to a state senator in Colorado. 
and as I understand it, sent them up to the Commission of Political Practices. My, the intrigue that's a clip from the film Dark Money. Sarah, it was your company car that was broken into that sort of starts the chain of events with these documents. Why did you have these boxes with you? Um, I had them with me because they were to be brought to my boss's wife's dad's house to be destroyed. To be destroyed? Yes. Shredded? Yes. And why do you think they wanted to shred them? I suppose the answer is obvious, but I'd like to hear it in your own words. Because they knew the heat was on them. That was the words that they used. And so they wanted to make sure that the evidence that was there that showed coordination um, didn't exist anymore. Coordination, once again, with the campaign directly. Correct. Mm -hmm. Kimberly, what is it you hope people learn from this film, especially in the post-Citizens United environment? Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, they, they, they call it dark money for a reason, and that's usually because you can't tell what's going on, who's behind all of the spending. And thanks to just the great and really brave work um, by people like Sarah, uh, we had some whistleblowers, we had these kind of accidental disclosures of information, um, some key email leaks to journalists, because of all of that, we were able to tell a story where we connect the dots and show people how, you know, these games work all the time. Um, we just seems like whenever you flip the lights on, this is you see this activity happening. And we were able to tell that story in Montana be, because of people like Sarah. We were able to tell this story, a kind of a similar story about what happened in Wisconsin because of some email leaks. And Basically, you just have to assume that this is going on all of the time in this system that has been essentially legalized by some key Supreme Court decisions. So what we're trying to do is point out um, how this illegal behavior is happening all of the time um, because it's been given free reign. And I think that once people see how this see how the game works, see how the shell game (laughs) works in Montana, that they'll be able to take the example from that um, to other states and basically follow the example of enforcement that Montana was able to enact. It's interesting because another story arc in this film, Dark Money, is the decline of newspapers in Montana so that the watchdogs themselves are being weakened to some extent. Uh, and and that these might work at cross purposes. Uh, So many things had to align quite perfectly. You know, Sarah had to come on the scene. These documents had to be discovered. Um, There had to be the right reporting environment from newspapers and such. And, And so you say there, Kimberly, this is probably going on all the time. Uh, I guess the implication there is a lot of it is just not being caught. Absolutely. Yes, as you say, we had uh, we had some dogged journalists who were following this story. We kind of see the film Dark Money through the eyes of a journalist called John S. Adams. And um, we, we see some of the, the travails, some of the challenges that the newspaper industry is going through. And I know that there have been a lot of shakeups in Colorado recently Indeed. with... Um, you know, the Rocky Mountain News and, you know, the Denver Post more recently. And I think that one of the, as you say, one of the other things our film shows is that you really do need to have a strong watchdog press to follow this. 
And if that disappears, our ability to follow the money, uh, as the expression goes, that that disappears as well. So one of the other messages I think that comes through pretty loud and clear in the film is that we need to support journalists and journalism and um, strong newspaper outlets. And um, that uh, sounds like is something, uh, a public dialogue that's going on in Colorado today as well. Indeed. Thanks to you both. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Great talking with you. We heard Kimberly Reed. She directed the new documentary Dark Money. And Sarah Arnold. She's a whistleblower from Colorado Springs who's featured in the film. The documentary opens tomorrow in Denver. No matter what your stance is on climate change, on this much, the scientific community agrees. The Arctic is warming twice as fast as any other place on Earth. Sea ice has thinned and retreated so much that scientists predict the Arctic will soon have ice-free summers. When Mark Serez began researching the Arctic in the 1980s, he was skeptical of climate change and secretly hoped the Arctic would cool. Today, Serez directs the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, and he writes about the melting north in his new book, Brave New Arctic. He explains how he eventually came around to accept climate change and people's role in it. And uh, Mark, welcome to the program. thanks for having me. The Arctic can feel far away. Help me understand how we're connected to what happens there 2,500 miles away. Well, we are in many ways uh, connected to it. Um, If you look at how the basic weather machine works, uh, it works because the Arctic is cold and it's warm in the lower latitudes. So there's a whole transport of energy from the lower to the higher latitudes. The Arctic just plays a very key role in that. Um, And as the Arctic changes, what we're expecting is that we could actually have influences on weather patterns down here in middle latitudes as we lose the sea ice and as the Arctic warms. So those are just a couple of reasons why the Arctic really does matter. Interesting. What did you call it? The weather machine. Uh, in a way, the Arctic might be our air conditioner, and it's a bit on the fritz. Well, I think that's a good description of it. Uh, it is where the snow and ice it is the refrigerator of our planet, and that refrigerator is uh, quickly changing, and it's not doing the kind of job that it used to do for us. And so to say that it would affect weather patterns here... Uh, gosh, that could mean drought. That could mean wildfire. What would be the effects in Colorado? Well, it's unclear what the effects here, right here in Colorado would be. This is actually a very controversial thing. Okay. Like, how might this happen? How might this Arctic sort of lower latitude connection work? There's a lot of people working on this, uh, but it's still a very, uh, very controversial issue. Uh, but it is just uh, another uh, piece of the story that, you know, what happens up there can influence what happens down here. As we said, you haven't always been a wholehearted believer in human-caused climate change. And in fact, for years, you called yourself a fence-sitter. Why? Well, because I just didn't see enough evidence. Um, I started out doing Arctic work, oh, back in the early 1980s when the Arctic was still the Arctic of old, that the old explorers of the 19th century would have recognized. And it was in sort of the early 1990s through the mid-1990s that we really started to see things change. But a lot of it looked to me just what we would call natural variability in climate, just natural cycles in climate. We expected that the human influence on climate change would appear in the Arctic, but I wasn't convinced that we had seen it. So I was uh, definitely a bit of a skeptic for quite a while. I wonder if, like uh, some skeptics, they look at the history of the globe and they say, well, there used to be an ice age. 
Now there isn't one. Of course, climate changes. It sounds like that was the category you were in. Well, in a sense, yeah, climate's always changed. Um, it always will change. But the thing is, any kind of climate change always has a reason. It doesn't just happen like Harry, uh, Harry Potter, uh, you know, flicking his magic wand. All climate change has a reason. Past climate changes in Earth's history, we understand how a lot of that happened. Hmm. What's happening now is just another reason. It's because of human effects, that we're loading the atmosphere with greenhouse gases, and the climate is responding to that. You began to see the evidence you needed to embrace that wholeheartedly. That's right, and it took a while for me. Uh, even in the year 2000, now I'm a, you know, I'm, a, I'm a climate scientist, I write papers and do things like that. Uh-huh. We wrote a, a very, very big paper in the year 2000, even that recently, where we said we're seeing Seeing these changes emerging in the Arctic, but what's the cause of them? We still weren't sure. It was about another three years or so that it took me to really get off the fence and turn to the other side because by then the evidence just became so overwhelming that I had no recourse but to say, okay, it's here. The evidence that greenhouse gases were contributing. All right. Take us back to that first trip to the Arctic. I've not been, so I'm going to live through you today. You arrived in far northern Canada on Elsmore Island to do research on ice caps there. What was it like? Well, I was just out of school, going to go into graduate school, and I had this opportunity to go up there. And, um, oh, we had been stuck for weather for a long time until we got to this ice cap. Finally, we got there on this beautiful cloudless day. Just a few things I remember about it was that there was uh, some fresh snow and some hoarfrost had developed the previous night, and these little ice ice facets were there on the surface, every one of them sparkling like jewels uh, in the sunshine. And uh, we were at about 3,000 feet at the top of this little ice cap, and you could see for 80 miles in any direction. The air was that clear. You could just see for 80 miles in every direction. It sounds so crisp. It was, but what really struck me was the absolute dead silence. After the airplane that dropped us off roared away, um, you could hear absolutely nothing. And that's such a rare thing, to hear absolutely nothing. And that's probably the thing that really stuck with me for a long time. You spent a lot of time studying the St. Patrick's Bay ice caps on that first trip. What did you want to learn well, we were under we were trying to understand how these little ice caps might influence the local climate. There were uh, theories out about how the ice ages of the past might have formed quickly uh, because uh, ice caps are white and white reflects most of the sun's energy and so that would cool the climate. Mm. And so what we were trying to do is kind of see how these little ice caps were cooling the climate, kind of a small-scale analog of what might have happened in the past. And we were also looking at the health of these little ice caps, uh, putting in these stake networks from which we could tell year after year if the ice caps were growing or if they were shrinking. So uh, I was just a great enthusiastic young cub scientist back then having a lot of fun. I realize I'm not entirely sure what an ice cap is. Mm. What is it capping? A mountain? Some sort of land feature? Help us understand That's what right. ice cap it, is. It's capping kind of a mountain or uh-huh. a land feature. Now these were little ice caps. Uh, these were, oh, you could have walked across them about a mile and a half. There's big ice caps out there which are maybe you know, 50, 100 miles across. And then we have our big ice sheets, the Greenland ice sheet, the Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, So it's a matter of scale. We have little ice caps, bigger ice caps, and then we have ice sheets. I almost don't want to ask, what's of the ice caps today? They're dead. 
they're basically gone. Um, a couple years ago, um, I was interested to see what had happened to them, and so I went down to uh, talk to one of my uh, uh, colleagues down the hall who was uh, looking at uh, ice caps and ice sheets and what was happening to them from high-resolution satellite images. And so I said, well, why don't we go look at where those little ice caps are and see what's happened to them? And we looked and we looked, and we finally got some clear sky data, and they were almost gone. And they had shrunken to little patches of ice, maybe the size of a couple of football fields. Uh, we're going to pull out more of the, the data probably when I get back, uh, even today maybe. They may be gone. Um, so these little ice caps that I studied back uh, back in the day, back in the early 1980s, which seemed like such permanent things, have died. They're dead. With the melting north, I suppose there are challenges coming and opportunities as well. And some of this is geopolitical. Help us understand that. Yeah, well, of course, when we talk about the changing Arctic, there's all kinds of environmental impacts. Yeah. Uh, everything from uh, old polar bears and seals uh, to um, um, down to the, the phytoplankton in the ocean. Uh, but there's all these geopolitical issues that are now emerging. Who owns the Arctic? What's happening now is shipping routes are starting to open, what we call the Northwest Passage through the channels of the Canadian Arctic, uh, along the shores of Siberia called the Northern Sea Route. Uh, these areas are now opening up to business. So the idea is you take your boatload of, say, Toyota Priuses, okay. and you go uh, directly from Tokyo right across the Arctic Ocean to New York or wherever you're going, as opposed to going through the Suez Canal or something like that, at savings of time, at savings of money. But we know that there have been many battles in history over shipping routes. <laughs> That's right. That there, there have been. And the Russians have been operating on the Northern Sea Route for, for a long, long time. But they see this as a great opportunity, right? What do they do? Put up a toll booth in Murmansk or something like that? Uh, the Russians are all over the changing Arctic, uh, not just in terms of things like shipping routes, but there's a lot of oil and natural gas at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean. And if prices are right, we're going to go after it. And Russia already has. It's a bit of an irony here. Yes, there's a vicious cycle, I think <laughs> yes. you might say. Yes, that's right. There's quite quite an irony out here that uh, we're losing the sea ice because of fossil fuel burning, but here we are going to drill for oil there. But that's what's happening. Um, and uh, even like our Defense, Department of Defense is, is very on to what's going on in the Arctic. I've worked with people from the Navy before, and what they tell me is that I don't care why we're losing the sea ice cover. All I know is I've got a blue ocean now that I didn't have before, and now I've got to deal with it. I've got to defend it. Yes. I've got to figure out who it belongs to. I've got to figure out who else is there. That's correct. And yet we also know that uh, many in the Defense Department uh, are believers in human-caused climate change and are preparing their bases for it around the world, uh, which might be in, in stark contrast to the administration at the moment. Well, that's quite true. Department of Defense, they're realists. They're realists. Uh, they know what's going on. They see what's going on. We had discussions with someone a while ago who was uh, concerned about naval ports and climate change in naval ports. And we were saying, well, why would they be co concerned about that? Right. Well, they're built at sea level. And sea level is rising. So, of course, it's of a concern to them. So uh, it's interesting. Well, the rest of our administration maybe is really not on to this thing of climate change. Our own Department of the Tent very much is. If the, the nations of the world, with or without the United States, are able to make important dents in uh, fossil fuels or in greenhouse gas emissions, is there some thought that the Arctic could return 
to the state that it was when you were there in the 1980s. That oh. those ice caps, those sweet little ice caps that I really feel like you had a love affair with, Mark, that those might return. They, they were. I mean, that was when it became personal, right? When I saw that my little, my little ice caps. They're really the Canadian government's little ice caps. Uh, I thought okay. of them as mine. <laughs> but certainly the Arctic could come back. Uh, but we are kind of committed right now for quite some time. Uh, probably no matter what we do, we're going to see a seasonally ice-free Arctic Ocean uh, on the horizon. When? 2040, 2050, that's what we're looking at. Uh, but uh, the Arctic can come back, and I think we as a people, we're starting to make inroads. Uh, I think we're starting to move in the right direction. Uh, we need to move a whole lot faster with a, a lot more vigor, uh, but I think we are starting to move in uh, the right direction. So uh, the Arctic can come back. Can come back. I'd like to go back to two species that you mentioned earlier, uh, one very large and charismatic, the polar bear, and one uh, perhaps not as sexy, phytoplankton. Uh, why don't we start with phytoplankton? I think we so often think of the polar bear in terms of the changes in the Arctic. What's the importance of the phytoplankton and how it might change? Well, of course, the phytoplankton is the very base of the food chain. Uh, we have the phytoplankton and then uh, uh, other uh, you know, heterotrophs, what we call them. They'll eat the phytoplankton. And then uh, we have the zooplankton, right? That's the next step up. Other things eat the zooplankton all the way up to the top predators like polar bears. So what's happening in the Arctic really cuts through the entire food chain. Uh, so phytoplankton blooms are actually increasing uh, in some areas because the ice is thinner and more light gets through the ice, and there's less ice as well, so more so sunlight. So there's more food. There's more food at the base of the chain. So interestingly, in some ways, right, this is an, a case where there are some winners uh, to this changing Arctic. Are there others? Yeah. Well, bowhead whales apparently are doing pretty well. Uh, what they come is they come in through the Bering Strait and then move up into uh, what we call the Beaufort Sea. Uh, and uh, they eat the uh, the krill and things like that, what we call the zooplankton. And uh, there's more zooplankton, right? So they're doing okay. Uh, but certainly other animals like top predators, polar bears, not doing so well. Uh, walruses, there's issues with that. So... Like anything in the whole climate change issue, there are winners and there are losers. It's not a zero-sum game. Talk to me about your relationship to the Arctic today. It's been a bit since you've been back, right? Oh, a couple of years, yeah. just because <laughs> things haven't worked out, but I'm hoping to get up next year. Okay. What questions do you still want to answer? Well, I think one of the big ones uh, that we're very interested in is what's going to happen as the permafrost thaws. Because what and help us understand what yeah, permafrost all right. well, is. What permafrost is is perennially frozen ground. So if you go out to the Arctic, say, in summer, and you dig with a shovel, uh, you'll dig through dirt for maybe, you know, half a couple of feet. Then you'll hit ice. And that ice is permanent ice, right? Permafrost. Now, permanent frost. But... A lot of this permanent ice, it's in old peatlands and things like that, so frozen peats, right? And this contains a whole lot of carbon in it, more than's in the atmosphere right now. Mm. And so what happens is that as we start to thaw that permafrost, the little microbes in the soil become active. They start breathing. What do they breathe out? Carbon dioxide or methane, depending and, on the situation. And the cycle continues. And the cycle continues because you increase the atmospheric load of the greenhouse gases, causing it to be even warmer, thawing even more permafrost. The questions out there is when might this vicious cycle kick in, what we call a climate feedback. 
And if it, we, when it does kick in, how big is it going to be? Is it going to be a small effect? Is it going to be a really big effect? We don't know. My goodness. It's a bit of a scary question, Mark. Well, there's a number of wild cards out there in terms of Arctic change. This, what we call permafrost carbon feedback, what I just mentioned, uh, is just one of these. Uh, The other one I mentioned earlier, as we warm up the Arctic, how would that affect, say, weather patterns in middle latitudes? That's another wild card out there. You know, we know a lot about the Arctic uh, and how it's changing and what it means, but that doesn't mean we know everything. Your journey... Um, as an academic, as a scientist, from being somewhat skeptical of human-caused climate change to, to realizing that it really is what is changing the Arctic. I wonder if it's something that you share with a lot of audiences uh, with the idea, perhaps, of saying, yeah, I was there, too. It's very true. No, it's very true. I think this, uh, to be honest, I think it gives me a little more credibility here as a climate <laughs> okay. as a climate scientist, right, who is actually uh, skeptical about a human role in climate change, but one who saw it all happen and was there at the beginning. And I think it's an important story to tell about how science works, uh, that we don't have preconceived notions of what things are. Uh, we based our assumptions on the evidence that we have. And for a long time, to me, the evidence wasn't strong enough. Then it changed. But that's how science works. Well, thanks for sharing this story with us. And I'm sorry about your ice caps. So am I. It's, it's a sad thing. Do you have image? I wonder if you have images of them up in your office. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. I have all kinds of old photographs uh, and things like this. So I have my memories. Of the way we were. <laughs> okay, Mark, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. He's Mark Serez. He directs the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder. And his new book is Brave New Arctic, the untold story of the melting north. Finally today, fans of Devotchka were delighted earlier this year when the genre-defying Denver band announced their return to the studio for their first new album in seven years. The first track is called Straight Shot, which frontman Nick Urata describes as a moonlit swim through heartbreak in a sea of ghosts from your past. I can draw a straight line through my mind Right back to the good times Back when all the stars were lined Before all the paperwork got signed Oh, it's like a straight shot Through the backyards and the vacant lots Through the very chambers of my heart to the part of town that even you seem to have forgot And now it's just a short ride over to the east side It's where my true love still resides Where all of my dreams go to die And my life is just around the bend And these broken hearts can mend It just takes time, time, time It takes time, time, time You 
are hearing the new music from Divachka and that plaintive voice of its frontman, Nick Urata. This is called Straight Shot. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. The show is at Colorado Matters. We're on Facebook, CPR News. And we're a podcast. So if you ever miss us, check out wherever you get your podcasts, Colorado Matters, including iTunes. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. side of my brain The one that drives a thinking man insane Wishing his circumstances never have to change My life